no sense in going further. It's the edge of cultivation. So they said, and I believed it. Broke my land and sowed my crop. Built my barns and strung my fences in the little border station, tucked away below the foothills, where the trails around stopped. Till a voice as bad as conscience rang interminable changes on one everlasting whisper day and night repeated. So, something hidden, go and find it. Go and look behind the ranges. Something lost behind the ranges. Lost and waiting for you. Go. That poem has been up there for decades and decades and decades. So my, my father-in-law ended up seeing that and, and, and reading that kind of back in the day. And, and he and I would talk about that. And I, I step back and look at John. John has hiked, um, that's my father-in-law, he's, he's hiked virtually every mountain or had, had hiked virtually every mountain in the Olympics. Um, and his ashes are now on Hurricane Ridge in the Olympics. And so you, you step back and you, you kind of look at it and you, you recognize that, that people for literally for generations have been looking at those words and everybody kind of gets their own meaning from it. And I can remember looking at that when I was 11 or 12, back in the early 70s, and going, that's kind of cool. And now I'm looking at it, you know, in my late 50s and going, that's still pretty cool. You're listening to Where All Trails End, stories of scouting from the Pacific Northwest. This is episode two, where we hear about the stories of the Camp Parsons scouts who have ventured into the Olympic mountains. You just heard Keith Dingfeld, a former Camp Parsons hike master, describe what Rudyard Kipling's Explorer poem means for him and his father-in-law. That's kind of cool, Keith remarked, but he's not the only one who thinks so. As Keith had explained, an excerpt from that poem has stood in the Camp Parsons dining hall for perhaps a hundred years. We don't know if it's been there since the camp first opened in 1919, but we do know from the earliest photographs that it was there at least a few years after. Something hid it. Go and find it. Go and look behind the ranges. Something lost behind the ranges, lost and waiting for you. Go. Those words stare down scouts from the rafters still today. I remember reading them for the first time when I was just 13. Like many younger scouts, I thought it meant there was a buried treasure behind the rifle and the archery ranges. As you get older, you discover what that poem really means. Here's another former Camp Parsons hike leader, Scott Olson. The point that it's trying to make is you don't know what's available. So go and look for it. And if you actually, if you Google that phrase, lost and waiting for you go, you'll come up with the poem, the, the Kipling poem. And the stanza that's on the wall is actually the second stanza of that poem. The first stanza of that poem talks about how he started by going to the end of the railroad tracks and you know setting up his farm there because everybody told him that that's as far as you could go. And he started out listening to that advice until something in the back of his head told him to go farther. And I think that's the point. You know, listen to your instincts. In some ways, young scouts have it right. Rudyard Kipling's poem, The Explorer, is about treasure. But there can be no doubt that the ranges in question, at least for Parsons scouts, were the Olympic mountains. The first American to summit Mount Everest, Jim Whitaker, was one of those scouts who got to find out what those words really meant. He attended Camp Parsons and scaled mountains as a teenager that many healthy adults couldn't attempt today. As you'll hear in this series, he was not the only one to discover who he was in the Olympic mountains. Before we hear the story of a Camp Parsons scout who would end up 
getting the Olympic wilderness named after him. We're going to go back in time. When Camp Parsons first opened, the Olympic Peninsula was a desolate place. Stuart P. Walsh, in his book titled 13 Years of Scout Adventure, which was published in 1923, describes what his group of scouts found. On the Olympic Peninsula are the most rugged mountains and the densest forests in the United States. Included in it are the Olympic National Forest and Monument. This space of more than 4,000 square miles is still largely unexplored. Few trails penetrate it. Elk, bear, deer, and small game roam almost unmolested. It is the last west, still unspoiled by the trespass of civilization. Its mountain scenery matches any of our national parks, yet it is isolated and practically unknown. At the eastern edge of this region, the Seattle Council five years ago established its summer camp, which has become a base for wonderful adventure. The camp is at the edge of saltwater on the shore of Hood Canal, yet within a day's hike, scouts can break ice on lakes to go swimming in July, indulge in snow fights in August, and photograph wild animals on any clear morning. They can map the course of nameless rushing streams and measure with an aneroid barometer the altitude of nameless snow-capped peaks. On trips of five to 10 days duration into this country, the original arts of scout craft are tested to the utmost. To follow a faint trail long unused, to discern old blazes on mossy tree trunks in the twilight of the forest jungle to determine safe routes where no trails exist, to find natural bridges over rushing rivers, to make and break camp quickly. All these arts of the woodsman, as well as those of the mountaineer, on snow, ice, rock slide, and cliff, are essential abilities of scouts who join these parties. On 16 trips which were scheduled for this last season, scouts traveled through forests where the ground is dusty under giant cedars after the heaviest rain. They traversed alpine meadows where a dozen species of wildflowers cover acres of loveliness. They made their way over snow fields and glaciers to gaze on hundred-mile panoramas from rocky summits far above the clouds. In 1920, at our summer camp on Hood Canal, scouts and their leaders became fired with the ambition to climb all the peaks in the Olympic range that hadn't already been climbed. This was a large objective, for in the Olympics, plenty of mountains had not even been named, not to speak of climbing them. One in particular attracted us, a majestic double peak called the Brothers. No trail led to its base. It rose amidst a rugged maze of sharp ridges that had baffled several attempts to reach it. Between these ridges and the canal lay the dense forest jungle. Those scouts never made it up the brothers on that summer in 1923. Somewhere on their hike, they took a wrong turn and ended up climbing the mountain across from the one they thought they were actually climbing. They decided to turn back because they were going to run out of food. But as Walsh writes, we felt that we had been somewhere. We had traveled through forests where no trail existed. We had followed uncertain lines of faint blazes. We traversed a great deal of nearly perpendicular scenery 
We had seen wonderful sights, and we had come back safe and well. Many times thereafter, we enjoyed hikes more successful. We learned to climb over immense snowfields in August and try vainly to keep cool. We learned the unequal joy of standing on the absolute summit of a hitherto unclimbed mountain. We learned to become almost friendly with the oversized woodchucks that are called whistling marmots and to photograph them at close range. But none of these things gave us the thrill of that first venture into the virgin jungle. Though Walsh describes one of the earliest public accounts of hiking at Camp Parsons, many more were published in the years thereafter. The scouts from Parsons quickly became one of the principal hiking groups in the entire mountain range. By the mid-1920s, they had already established a tradition of taking annual trans-Olympic hikes all the way to the then-deserted wilderness beaches of the Pacific Ocean. This remarkable achievement did not go unnoticed. In 1926, the annual hike across the Olympic Peninsula became an expedition in the realist sense. It was sponsored by a major Seattle newspaper, the Seattle Star. Using radio, the scouts remained in daily contact with the newspaper so that the expedition could be reported on regularly in the Seattle paper. To communicate with these scouts deep within the Olympic mountain range was considered a technological achievement for the time. The Star Report reads, Radio carries first dispatches from Boy Scout explorers in Olympics. The boys, 10 picked Eagle Scouts, hiked out for the wilds on July 11, 1926, behind leader R.R. Ruderman and his assistant Lionel Shute, with radio stations and grub for their two weeks. The expedition got away from its Camp Parsons base in Hood Canal early Sunday afternoon, filing onto the river trail, packs on backs, and with high hopes for interesting discoveries in the headwaters of the Queets River. First messages to the star were sent by Neil Brown from Station 7XF, which functioned in spite of adverse conditions. Howard Mason at 7BU in Seattle, the relay station, reported the voices came through clearly. Two weeks later, the scouts emerged north of Lake Quinault, and the pictures they had taken were reportedly rushed to the Seattle Star. According to the paper, these pictures depicted, quote, graphically the dangers and scenery discovered by the Seattle party in its history-making trek into the unknown country of the upper Queets Valley. In 1926, hiking in the Olympic Mountains was like exploring another planet. Many of the scouts would be some of the first to establish the trails and summit the peaks of the Olympic mountain ranges. One such scout leader on that 1926 trip, Lionel Shute, had earlier been part of the third group ever to summit Mount Constance, the third highest peak in the Olympics. Shute and his fellow Camp Parsons staff member, Walter Thompson, climbed the mountain for the first time in 1923. They were preceded by two other Camp Parsons scouts, Henry Thompson and Harold Sparks. They had climbed Mount Constance the year before in 1922 and were the second group ever to climb that mountain. One book titled Olympic Mountains, A Climbing Guide recounts some of the stories behind these notable ascents. The following is an excerpt describing Camp Parsons and its scouts association with the Olympic Mountains. Mount Constance, third highest peak in the range and dominant on the eastern front overlooking Puget Sound, attracting the attention of climbers at an early time. The peak proved to be unusually complex difficult of access even for the Olympics, and well guarded by many vertical pillow basalt cliffs. After at least five previous attempts, it was successfully climbed in June 1922 when A. Earl Bremerton Smith 
and Robert Shellen, members of the Mountaineers, solved the approach puzzle and reached the top by a long and complex route that was not again repeated for 60 years. They were immediately accused of falsifying the ascent by John Johnny the Trapper Clements in the Brennan General Store. Clements wrote a letter to the Seattle Star claiming the party had pulled a Doc Cook and it was published on the front page. Two young assistant camp directors from Boy Scout Camp Parsons at Brennan, Henry E. Thompson and Harold B. Sparks, set out to duplicate the climb, and with the aid of a sketch provided by Smith and Shellen, made the second ascent in September 1922 by a variation, and returned with proof of the first ascent. The Boy Scouts have had a long and intimate association with the range. Edmund S. Meany, Commissioner of Scouting in the Puget Sound region, led a group of scouts into the Olympic area in 1914, prior to the organization of local scout councils. He is reported to have made the first ascent of Mount Tom at that time. Though some historians now consider this story apocryphal, in the following years, the Seattle Council established its main camp, Camp Parsons, on Hood Canal. The second and third ascents of Mount Constance were completed by Boy Scout parties in 1922 and 1923. The second ascent of Mount Anderson and the second ascent of the South Peak of the Brothers both in 1924, were also by Boy Scouts. Over a period of several decades, these scout groups ranged widely throughout the mountains, accounting for the names of places such as Lake of the Angels, Delmont Ridge, and Scout Lake. They climbed a majority of the summits that did not require ropes, and many more with a more difficult nature. listening to Where All Trails End, stories of scouting from the Pacific Northwest. This is episode two, where we look at the adventures Camp Parsons scouts have had in the Olympic Mountains for over a hundred years. Through the years, there have been many scouts that found something while exploring the mountains that drove them to do great things. Camp Parsons scout Jim Whitaker would go from climbing Mount Olympus to summoning the top of the world, Mount Everest. Parsons scout Omi Diber would later be called by the American Alpine Journal the father of mountain rescue. Parsons Eagle scout Peter Schoening was hailed in his obituary by the New York Times as a mountaineering legend for saving the lives of six men on K2, the world's second highest peak. He single-handedly held onto a rope that held the weight of all six men. Another would develop a love so deep for the wilderness he found hiking at Camp Parsons that he would stop at nothing to protect it. One time, that wound him all the way up in the Oval Office. This scout's name is Dan Evans. Evans first attended Camp Parsons when he was 16 in 1940. He would join the Camp Parsons staff from 1941 to 1942, and then again in 1947 to 1948 as the hike master of the Olympic Explorations Program. He served in World War II. He served in the Korean War and he served in the United States Senate. He was also Washington's governor for three terms, a feat only accomplished by one other governor. Today, 97% of Olympic National Park is named after him. This is the story of how a young boy journeyed into the mountains behind Camp Parsons and came out a great American. This is Daniel J. Evans' story, told from both his own words and those who hiked alongside him. Years and years ago, this friend of mine across the street, we were very close buddies. In fact, there were four boys all the same age who lived on a 
short street, one block long street that uh, ended dead end into Laurelhurst Playfield. So we spent a lot of time together and a lot of time up in the playfield. And when, uh, you know, early on, this fellow from across the street said, uh, you know, we ought to go check out the Boy Scout troop. And in those days, you know, almost every young boy did join a scout troop. We had two scout troops in Laurelhurst, and kind of one had uh, kids from one side of the playfield, and the other had kids from the other side of the playfield. And um, we were competitors, but, uh, you know, in a great way. And so that's, we went up and checked out the Boy Scout troop, and that was one of the, you know, great decisions I made. It just, it looked like it was going to be fun. And uh, there were a lot of older kids from the neighborhood that I looked up to who were senior members of the troop. And so that's when uh, I got started. I met Governor Evans at one of his favorite places to grab a bite to eat, a Burger Master in Seattle. For being 93 years old, his memory was impressively sharp. Evans began his scouting experience the same way many young boys do, eager for adventure, yet naively unaware of what it would require of him. It was one of the best decisions I ever made, he now claims. And yet, also like many first-time scouts, there was a time when Evans didn't think he was cut out for scouting. One can only imagine how differently things would have turned out if Evans had given up after his first hike. And I, and I almost quit in the first three months because the first hike we went on was in November. And it was a day hike uh, climbing Silver Peak up in the Cascades, right up near Snoqualmie Pass. And I vividly remember and the older scouts, of course, were telling us tenderfeet that, um, boy, we got to watch it. You know, there's lots of bears in those woods. And then the cougars are all right. You know, they were just trying to scare the heck out of us. And uh, we got, and the troop started up, and uh, as a tenderfoot, I was not terribly well equipped. And it started to rain, and uh, as we got higher and higher, got colder, and the wind started, and the rain turned to snow, and pretty soon the snow was coming horizontally at us as we got up out of the woods. And I was thinking to myself, if I ever get out, you know, if I ever get out of this trip, I'm never, ever going to do it again. And we kept, but we kept going. And pretty soon it started to level off and we were on top. And that changed things quite a bit. You know, it was still colder than hell and wondering why I was there, but and I had climbed the mountain. And that, that, really, that really was a big thing. And then when, uh, but I still said, this is the last time I'll climb the mountain. But as we started down, the, um, you know, the wind kind of died off and the snow stopped and we got down into the woods and the sun actually started to come out. And that changed everything and got in the cars and by the time I got home I burst through the door and said I climbed the mountain so you know you forget all about the bad stuff and just remember the fact that you did and, and you know that started me off and from then on there was no no stopping 
So, and I still love every opportunity to get up in the in the wilderness. And I find that, you know, wilderness today is uh, very. It, there are a lot more people out, and and, uh, and I think we have a bigger percentage of people who get out and are very active in the mountains than most places in the country because we've got better mountains. And uh, yet, every time I get on a trail, all you have to do is get about five or six miles up a trail and there's hardly anybody. You know, there, there are a few, but not many. They're, 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 everybody goes in a little ways, but not, you know, not too far. And then when you get up to favorite spots and you just get off trail, then you're totally by yourself and, and whoever you're with, those are special. Now that's where I love to get. There's no sense in going further. It's the edge of cultivation. So they said, and I believed it, broke my land and sowed my crop. Till a voice, as bad as conscience, rang interminable changes on one everlasting whisper, day and night repeated. So, something hidden, go and find it. Go and look behind the ranges. Something lost behind the ranges, lost and waiting for you. Go. Evans heard the whispers of something truly beautiful on that first hike. And as it turned out, he hadn't heard the last of them. When we come back, we'll hear about the hundreds of miles Evans explored while scouting at Camp Parsons. We'll hear about how it made him who he is today and gave him the drive to protect that same land for generations to come. This has been Where All Trails End, Stories of scouting from the Pacific Northwest. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to Where All Trails End. Stories of scouting from the Pacific Northwest. Courage has to do with pain and harm. Pain is one of the two primary obstacles that people face as they try to become good people. And the other one is pleasure. Courage is taking pain seriously, but acting in the face of it in the right way, which may mean getting hurt, may mean getting killed. But everybody gets scared sometimes, and those are all opportunities and you can form your soul around how you react to fear. Choices are hard to make when there's no really good option. You have to forego some good thing for the sake of a better thing, or you have to accept some bad thing to avoid a worse thing. And that means that it's when you're under stress that you learn about yourself and shape your character. So if you go out there in the middle of nowhere and there's no way back, except to walk. Well, there's risk in that. And in the mountains, it's likely to be cold. And so there's discomfort in that. And you expose yourself to that, and you learn from it, and you build your character. It, it is a great idea. Lord Baden-Powell started scouting in England. Uh, Winston Churchill said a beautiful thing about it. It's something like, uh, Cling to honor on all occasions, however the wind may blow. 
he saluted scouting for teaching young men to do that. And uh, that's, you know, young men and women need to learn to do that because otherwise they'll blow with the wind and that's not a happy life. Dan Evans was Explorer Post Advisor for Post 188, which was the Explorer Post sponsored by our same sponsor and located at Warlhurst Community Center, Fieldhouse. And uh, he led our troop, he led the whole district on our first campery. We were camped up on Taylor River and the cars stopped, let us out, and then Dan led us on a hike through the wilderness to our campsite, where we were very surprised to find the cars. I remember being very apprehensive and staying as close to Dan as I could on that hike. Later, Dan went off to the Korean War. When he came back in 1955, he took some of the older kids from Troop 180 on a hike through the Olympics. The first day we were on the trail, and then we left the trail and for the rest of the week, we were hiking through the wilderness of the Olympic mountains. And I remember being very relieved when we finally got back on a trail. <laughs> but uh, one night we were approaching a lake and the fog was all the way down to the ground. And Dan was at the end of the line and I was by Dan and uh, he was calling to the older kids who were in the front of the line. Have you found the lake yet? <laughs> no, well, keep going. <laughs> Have you found the lake yet? No, we'll keep going. Have you found the lake yet? Yes, we walked right into it. So we camped by the side of this lake in the, in the fog. But the next morning, the fog had lifted, the sun was up, and we looked out across this beautiful lake surrounded by the cliff of a mountain on the other side a lake that had no trail to it. Dan knew how to get there and how to get back. So it was a tremendous experience. Where whereabouts was that? Oh, I have no clue. <laughs> we left the trail. On the second day, we got back on a trail on the last day, and the rest of the time we were in trackless wilderness. He knows the Olympics, and uh, in those days you didn't have to stay on the trail. Yeah. You had your compass, of course. Well, we had Dan Evans. <laughs> <laughs> he, Dan Evans was your compass. Yes. What type of guy was he when you knew him in his younger years? Same kind of guy he is now. Tremendous guy, tremendous outdoorsman, inspirational, good storyteller. I can remember our troop meetings in the Laurelhurst Field House, fire in the fireplace, and Dan standing in front telling us these great stories. And later I heard the same voice on the radio. Dan had gone into politics. I supported him on each of his runs. Were you surprised when he became governor? Not at all. He was a, one of our only two, three-term governors. Dan Evans was a true scout. When he got to Washington, D.C. as a senator, press corps called him straight arrow. They couldn't get anything on him. You're listening to Where All Trails End, stories of scouting from the Pacific Northwest. The man you just heard is Bill Montgomery. He's the longtime scoutmaster of Troop 166, 
which attends Camp Parsons every year. He's also a former Camp Parsons program director and was at one time an inexperienced Boy Scout hiking under the guidance of Dan Evans. It's amazing how in just a few years, a scout can go from being scared of the wilderness to wanting to share its mysteries with others. For Bill Montgomery, Dan Evans' success in politics came as no surprise. He was a true scout, Montgomery remarked. We'll have to wait and hear from Evans himself to understand what exactly that means. We return now to Daniel Evans' account of his experiences exploring from Camp Parsons and where exactly those experiences led him. those days we would uh, go up to camp for two weeks, not one, and on the beginning of the second week, the whole camp, all 250 or 300 kids plus the leaders would scatter into the Olympics on 25 or 26 different hikes. That was my first hike into the Olympic mountains. Uh, our troop had done, you know, a considerable amount of hiking and we'd gone places, but never to the Olympics. That took a while to get over there and and of course, uh, this was uh, really during the war or close to the war. And so there was a lot of rationing of gasoline and you couldn't go as far. It was one of those great summer weeks where the weather was terrific for the whole hike. And I do remember the uh, leader of the hike was Grant Wilcox. And we went up the Dosi Wallops River about five or six miles and stopped for a rest and he then pointed up the hillside and said, that's where we're going. And we started straight up the hillside off trail uh, and uh, finally got out into some steep meadows and then got to a very steep gully and uh, very carefully made our way up that gully, ultimately to the top of Mount Deception. So that was the, that was the peak we were aimed at. What I remember most is getting to the top of Mount Deception on a great day, marvelous day, and looking around at all of the valleys and the lakes and the mountains and the other places in the Olympics that uh, were challenges for another hike or another climb. Well, that started it all off. Uh, we had done some hiking as a troop, but once I came back from Camp Parsons, I really you know, we were a pretty active troop and we got into a lot more uh, interesting hikes, mostly in the Cascades. And then uh, I could hardly wait to get back to Camp Parsons the next year and do it all over again. You know, from the day that I got to Camp Parsons, or more particularly from the day that I set out on that first hike in, uh, in the Olympics, I was just captured by I what I did really once I got to the top was just look around at all the other hikes that were out there for me to take I came back as the camper the next summer back into the ranger section uh, we had another great hike and then uh, I came back before the end of that period the ranger chief and I think he was working on behalf of the camp staff asked me if I wanted to stay on the rest of the summer as a member of the staff. And I said, sure, absolutely. When I got on the staff, Camp Parsons hikes and other hikes, when we'd just go with other kids, just, you know, mostly with two or three other staff members and then outside the camp. 
time, we'd go off on trips and uh, we'd, we'd put on in, in indelible ink on the packboard, in the back of the packboard, the hikes and the number of miles of each hike. And pretty soon, you know, after a few years, had the whole packboard was covered with them. I know before my first good backpack gave out, I had 650 miles of hikes on there before I got a better, <laughs> better pack. One hike, uh, when I was out there as a leader of the hike, uh, pretty good hike. We had everything was going fine. Uh, we uh, got up into a great meadow country and we were cooking dinner and uh, it started to rain. And here we were out in the middle of the meadow. We had no tent set up or anything like that. And so we hustled, uh, you know, everything under a grove of trees there, which was pretty sheltered and it wasn't raining all that hard, but we, uh, we picked up the number 10 tins filled with uh, food and, uh, you know, headed off to the trees. And one of the older kids was carrying uh, some soup and he tripped and and he didn't fall but he tipped the uh, number 10 tin full of very hot soup and uh, boy i could hear him yell and we went there and got his boots and socks off as fast as we could but it ended up that he had um, really you know good uh, second degree burns and so he had blisters all over his uh, feet and I thought good kind of about 10 miles from the nearest road you know what the heck are we going to do and we um, did as much first aid as we could and fortunately the bottom of his foot was still okay it was just the top top of his foot that had gotten hammered and so we were able to get a you know, heavy cardboard, and we're able to strap it on, miss, missing where he had gotten hurt, and he was able to hobble down the trail. The whole array of Boy Scout, you know, efforts is toward the outdoors to learn to be, uh, you know, self-reliant, which you have to be if you're going to be up in the middle of the mountains someplace, to. Um, acquire skills that you normally don't get in uh, you know formal education to broaden your acquaintanceship beyond just school to other young guys and i think all of those things put together you know really create the basis for leadership that's pretty darn important the olympic mountains were daniel j evans home for many of those summers just as Camp Parsons scouts had done during the 1926 press expedition, Evans accomplished a feat few even attempt today. He traversed the Olympic wilderness from the eastern Puget Sound to the western Pacific Ocean, stopping at the mountain range's highest peak, 7,980 feet tall Mount Olympus. Decades later, that very wilderness would be dedicated in his name. I then had an explorer post uh, after uh, being on the Camp Parsons staff between the World War II and the Korean War. There were three of, three of the young K-1 
kids in our Explorer post and I, we spent one whole winter doing uh, research on the first explorations in the Olympics. But we thought yeah, it would be great to follow the O'Neill expedition trip. And we studied uh, all of the histories and, and the, the really the interesting log that O'Neill himself kept during the trip. And we uh, started up the uh, Skokomish River. And we got there, and that's where we left trail. And we went up the side of the, uh, you know, the hillside. It was a steep hillside, and we climbed through the trees and then got out into some open country. Camped the first night on a steep hillside. There was no flat area whatsoever. We were kind of uncomfortable. And uh, we, um, you know, we made it and got up early the next morning and got up to the, to the top, and that led us. And we were up above Timberline then, and just you know, marvelous country up high we we went over we could see O'Neill Pass trail ahead of us and we hiked over to the trail and followed that out about uh, a mile and then just went straight down the hillside to the Quinault River and uh, we <laughs> unbelievable we got to the Quinault River wondering how we were going to get across and we walked out on the edge of the river here was a log that a tree had fallen straight across the river and we got on that log and walked across the river never got our feet wet and uh, got to the other side and then we went up the other side where there was a trail that had been abandoned about 10 or 15 years earlier but we got up to the top and across and we followed some very fine elk trails that were going in the same direction we were. And so we got up on top and then came down from there to the to the Elwha River, up the Elwha Snowfinger, headed toward Queets Basin, climbed up and over Mount Olympus on the glaciers to the other side on a very long, long day and camped uh, on the other side, the west side of Mount Olympus. The next day we climbed Mount Olympus came down and the day after came down the uh, whole river out. So we figured we, we did a compilation of all that we had done. We figured that we had gone up and down 23,000 feet because uh, we started at about the same elevation we left at. But it was really fun. It was a terrific trip. We were gone seven days and seven days of sunshine. We probably ran into eight elk herds during the trip, and just, it was absolutely marvelous. The one other great thing about uh, being up in the wilderness and spending time up there is that you learn of necessity to be very much self-sufficient in, in ways that you don't have the opportunity to do when you're just in the city or around. And that's both uh, worthwhile learning, but also it's really kind of fun. And, and over, over time, I, you know, you, you, I get, got from the time that I just took whatever food is necessary to survive to have 
great food when you're when you're up in the mountains. In fact, we on that long trip we took across the Olympics. On the last night, we were camped uh, at Elk Lake, I think. It's a, the lake just below Olympus when you're coming off of Olympus. And we camped there for the last night. And I had, I had brought a, a reflector oven along with me on the hike, but we had no chance to use it. But it was a lightweight. It was made out of sheet aluminum. I think that it had been, uh, the design of it had been an issue of boy's life. and. So I made one and it was about, you know, this size flat and about five sheets that you could, uh, you had the two sides and the, and the, uh, the angled back and the level grill. And, it, and you could flatten it all out and it was all done with slots and tabs and all that sort of to put it together. And that last night we finally had time and we, I brought some the packaged cookie dough along and we made cookies and were, we we and putting god they were really good they cooked just beautifully on the reflector oven and we had a campfire and all that and uh, when we were cooking the cookies a guy came over to visit and we had seen his fire on the other side of the lake and he came over to say hello and said, uh, you know, where have you been? We told him where he'd come from. He what? He said, yes. <laughs> he thought it was impossible that we'd come clear across the Olympics and the thing there. But we said, no, and how would you like some cookies? <laughs> so we blew him away. The Seattle Times called it a fitting tribute when in 2017, 97% of Olympic National Park was renamed the Daniel J. Evans Wilderness. As a U.S. Senator, Evans authored the Washington State Wilderness Act, which protected 1.5 million acres of land around the state for public use. A Republican, Evans is still celebrated by Washingtonians on all sides of the aisle today. As Congressman Derek Kilmer put it, when it came to protecting our most precious outdoor spaces, it wasn't about Democrats or Republicans, but about Washingtonians. This is the story of how Evans convinced President and fellow Eagle Scout Gerald Ford to sign his Wilderness Protection Bill. You're listening to Where All Trails End, stories of scouting from the Pacific Northwest. When I first joined the state legislature, that was four years after that long hike we had taken through the Olympics, and I was still, I was 29 when I joined the legislature. And I was also an engineer. And in both cases, um, it was fairly rare for other members of the House. I was in the House of Representatives. There were, I was the only engineer in the House of Representatives. And so that helped because when you got a bill that dealt with technical stuff and engineering stuff, other guys would come to me and... But the environment was, that was one committee that I really worked hard to get on. It was, that was really important. And that all grew out of my Camp Parsons time and the uh, love of wilderness that I developed during that time. Well, that was a fascinating time because we were, uh, we were developing the, uh, a new wilderness area right 
just to the east of Seattle. You know, you know it, it's a, a wilderness area that is as close to urban an urban area as I think anywhere in the country, and absolutely gorgeous country. I'd hiked in a whole lot of it. I worked hard with others from our own delegation to create the wilderness area and we sent it to the White House. We got it through the Congress, sent it to the White House and then uh, Joel Pritchard who was a long, long time friend of mine and one of my early colleagues in the legislature was then serving as a congressman. And he called me and he said, is there any chance you can come back and get an appointment with the president and tell him to sign? It's the Alpine Lakes Wilderness is the formal name. Because his Department of Agriculture, who is the Forest Service and others were recommending that he veto the the bill. And I said, well, I think so. And because I'd gotten to know Jerry Ford when he was in Congress pretty well and, and also dealt with him when he was president. And I called the White House and they said, well, yeah, you, here's a day you can have 15 minutes, that's all, because the president is very busy and all that sort of thing. I said, okay, that's enough. Flew back there and I got there and realized, I said, oh my gosh, I forgot the, the um, Mountaineers had just put out one of these coffee table books on the Alpine Lakes. And I said, I really wanted to show that to the president. So I called a friend who lived in Annapolis. He was one of the four members of our troop that crossed the Olympics. And uh, and we still, he comes out every year and we still go hiking together. And uh, I said, have you got a, the book? And he said, sure. And I said, can you bring it in tomorrow morning? I've got a meeting with the president and I'd like to show it to him. He laughed and he said, yeah, just on one condition, have the president sign it for me. So I said, okay. At any rate, the next morning we, we went in and I greeted the president and told him a little bit about what uh, this was all about and how important it was and how it was close to urban area and you know all of the reasons why it was a great idea. And I said, and I also have a book here to show you a few pictures so you can see what it's like. He started on page one and went through every single page on that book. The staff was coming in and said, Mr. President, you've got to go, you've got to go. 45 minutes instead of 15. And, uh, but he was, you know, he was an Eagle Scout and a real uh, hiker himself. So he really understood a lot of what I was saying, and especially the fact that it was this absolutely remarkable area. It's so accessible to so many people. And um, a couple days after I left, we got word that he had signed it. So, Dan Evans is 94 years old at the time of this podcast's airing. Last time we spoke, he mentioned he still enjoys hiking in the Olympics with his grandchildren. Interestingly enough, the book Dan Evans used to convince President Ford has been co-authored by another Camp Parsons alumni, Harvey Manning. Manning also attributed his love of the outdoors to his time hiking at Camp Parsons. He wrote at one time, what made scouting a key influence in my life was Camp Parsons. I attended Camp Parsons three summers in a row and went on four of those long hikes. That's a total of 16 days in the Olympic wilderness 
over the course of 900 days of my life. I can't remember most of those 900 days, but those 16, I remember minute by minute. Though Evans certainly led an extraordinary life of public service, many young men have had their lives changed by their time hiking from Camp Parsons. Now we turn a page and meet two hike masters who revitalized the Camp Parsons Explorers program in the 1980s, calling it the High Adventure Program. After a tragically fatal accident caused the council to shut down the hiking program years earlier, these two men restarted it. Now in their middle-aged years, Scott Olson and Keith Dingfeld can testify to the program's worthiness. I was on the climbing staff at Camp Shepherd. Shepherd was the uh, high adventure program base camp for Chief Seattle Council. But its last year of operation was 79. Uh, so I came in 1980 to Parsons because um, Parsons uh, was expanding, I think, a little bit, and I got pulled in to work on the waterfront staff. Um, I was on the waterfront staff 80, 81, uh, and then in 82, we restarted uh, the hiking program here. Um, and it, the reason we restarted it is because Shepherd had closed down and we were feeling a gap in the council. Uh, so I think the, the first hike leader that we had in 82 was a guy named Peter Riggs, uh, who had been program director the year before uh, we restarted the hikes. Um, so I was the high adventure program director in 83 and 84. And then Keith, uh, Keith and I swapped jobs. I became the waterfront director in 85. He went from being the waterfront director in 84 to being the high adventure program director in 85. Yeah, and, and for me, I got involved in the program because I, I saw my friend Scott hiking for two years and I loved the Olympics and I just kind of looked at what he was doing, just spending you know the entire summer just um, going through some of the most beautiful territory um, in the United States. And, and uh, so I looked at that and I just thought, you know what? I would like to do that for a summer and did that. And it was an absolute blast. One of the best summers. And I'd say I was probably in the best shape of my life. I think Sound of Music. I mean, there were some times I was walking under Mount Anderson. I think it's the Anderson Valley. And you just look out there and there would just be, you know, and especially after the snow had just receded, it would just be um, wildflowers as far as the eye could see. And it would be green and um, when we were hiking there in uh, in '85, um, you would be the only person there. I mean, it's just you know blue sky, um, enormous mountains, and beautiful mountain meadows full of wildflowers. Just amazing. As a as a hike master, um, you're in camp for maybe two two and a half days, and the rest of your week is is out in the wilderness. Um, and especially in the eighties, you just didn't see many people out on the trail. And so it was you and your, and your, your group. And it was, and it's extremely quiet. You don't have any noise pollution. You don't really have any light pollution either. Um, and so it's, it's a different deal when you look up, uh, you know, given the sort of the lack of, of light, um, you would probably see more stars on average, you know, once you're in the middle of the Olympics than you need get almost any place else just because you look up on a clear night and there's all the stars it's kind of amazing yeah it's it it it's funny too because um when you when you separate from a city and you go into 
the woods the first time, you're struck by the quiet, but after you spend some time in the woods, you're actually struck by the noise. Um, and you can, it, it gives you information that you need. Um, just the, the, the creak of a tree that's been hit by wind will tell you if you are, um, if you're coming up to the top of a ridge, if you're hearing those trees creak, you know that there's wind coming over the top of that ridge. You're not feeling the wind because you're below the crest, but you know the wind is there, so you know to be prepared for it. Um, you know that you're coming to a water source long before you can see it because you can hear it. Um, and so you, you, learn, you learn to take in the, um, the sort of the, the sensory input that comes with being outdoors. Um, the same way that, you know, you listen to a car without, you know, you know a car is coming without looking for it because you can hear it. It's, it's that same sort of thing. And you got to understand, too, this is the early 80s. You know, this is long before the Internet, long before mobile phones, long before any of that stuff. And so it was actually a less significant separation because we would be up here um, at camp for the entire summer with, you know, go to the payphone once a week and call home, if that. When I came up, I was up here and I wouldn't talk to my folks the entire summer. It, it was, and, and that was that was normal. Now you come up here with a mobile phone, you're you're always connected. So back then, you know, being in camp and not being in touch with uh, family back in Seattle wasn't all that fundamentally different from being on the uh, on the trail. That the biggest difference for me was was the medical piece. You know, if a guy fell down and and got injured. You had to take care of that because you couldn't come to the health lodge. I was also thinking a little bit about the, just the difference in, in equipment between, say, when my father-in-law would have been out hiking and what they would have eaten and then what we would have, have uh, taken out into the backcountry in the 80s and what you have now. I mean, with, with a lot of the ultralight, you know, I know guys that are out there with less than 20 pounds, um, significantly less than 20 pounds. And, now, and you look at what we had in the 80s. I mean, in, in your standard pack, what do you think the standard pack was? Maybe. Well, I, I, I like to go heavy. The, the, the average camper was carrying 40 pounds. Um, the smaller guys, a little less. Yeah. But it, it, even one of the big guys, it, if you got much above 45 pounds, that guy was going to suffer and, and go slow. Mm -hmm. But I, you know. You, you get a bunch of miles in your legs, particularly by week four, week five, you're in, in good shape. And, then, you know, I remember, you know, for that first night, you're carrying fresh eggs and, and you yeah. know, steak and stuff like that. And the just, occasional watermelon. The occasional, yeah, summit melon. Yeah. just <laughs> and, and that's just the carrying, carrying something that's ridiculous and heavy. So, and, and not just, you know, carrying it an hour in and at the first rest break, you know, pull out the 15 pound watermelon and cut it up. It's like, no, um, the, the watermelon is for the summit of whatever mountain you're climbing. So you're going to carry that thing for two days, put it in your rucksack and, and, and take it to the summit of the brothers or Brotherton or Skoke or wherever you're going. And you, you eat that thing at the highest point in celebration of the accomplishment, but also to, to show that 
yeah, you can you can put your back under 80 pounds and go for a week. And you know, when when you're a young man, it's great to be strong. Um, and and it's something that you should aspire to. And it's it's grounded in the Scout Oath, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it it's a great thing to strive for. Um, and and you do it because it's hard. And it's it's valuable because it's hard. And and making something absurdly hard to make the point to these young guys because. I would do the summit melon often and I would never let these guys know until we got on the summit. And then I'm, I'm, I'm pulling this 15 pound watermelon out of my rucksack and these guys, you know, these, these 15, 16 year olds are complaining about how tired they are and, you know, but that's what you should do when you're the hike master is, is show them what to aspire to. I, I love that. In the next episode of Where All Trails End, we'll return to the shores of Hood Canal and see what a week of camp feels like for the scouts of today. We'll experience the dining hall songs, campfire skits, the pier jump, and get to hear from the scouts both past and present that have been impacted by a week of summer camp on the Hood Canal. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to share it with others, or if you would like to receive an update when the next show comes out, please log on to www.wherealltrailsend.com. That's www.wherealltrailsend.com. You can also follow Ben underscore D-I-E-T-D on Twitter. This podcast has been made possible by Hillsdale College. Excerpts from this podcast have been taken with permission from The Boys of Summer by Michael Bruce Johnson. I'm Ben Dietrich, Camp Parsons staff member and radio host for Radio Free Hillsdale. Thank you for listening.